This is a special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, ISSCR Day One, with Dr. Chuck Murray. Hey, everybody, we are Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As you all know, yesterday launched the start of the 2021 ISSCR annual meeting, which Arun and I are attending virtually from the comfort of our own home, in Arun's case, my own office today. And every day throughout the meeting, we will be releasing special episodes discussing some of the meeting's highlights and chatting with special guests, including Chuck Murray at the University of Washington, who we'll be hearing from in just a bit. What's more, Arun and I have taken the plunge to release these episodes, not only in their traditional podcast format, but also as video episodes, which you can find on the Stem Cell Podcast website or Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel. You get a glimpse into the inner workings of the operation here. Please forgive me. I mean, this is me. I tidied it up, all right? Um, we're going to kick things off in just a minute, but before we get to that, if standardization is a challenge for your HPSC-derived organoid models, be sure to check out Stem Cell Technologies back-to-back -back innovation showcases tomorrow at noon Eastern time to hear more about the reproducible lung and brain region organoids to enable the study of development and disease. So for the full schedule of live sessions, you can visit the Stem Cell virtual booth. And actually, I wanted to start off a little bit out of order here. I wanted to start off by recapping the new ISCR guidelines. There was an entire session devoted to this, and there's been a lot of press that's actually come out recently, the reworking of the 14-day rule and that sort of thing. The ISCR has updated their stem cell guidelines dictating how we should you know, focus on stem cell research, not only looking at human embryo research, but stem cell research across the board. So basically, this is a pretty nifty panel comprised of 45 different members in this task force. Uh, importantly, none of the members in the task force could be engaged in the work that was actually under consideration. And what they did here in the new guidelines were establish categories of research. So category one is uh, stem cell research that's actually exempt from review. Category two has stem cell research that's permissible after an adequate re review. And category three is, as you might expect, prohibited research, stuff that we shouldn't do under any circumstance as a community. So in terms of the things that have been updated, the culture of human embryo models has been moved to category two in large part thanks to advances in the science, which we've talked about a lot here on the show, these gastroloids, blastoids, eyeblastoids, all these things that enable advanced study of human development in a dish. But the important thing here is transferring any of these human models is under category three. So if you're working on some of these blastoid models, you can keep doing that and, you know, have the appropriate review to enable working on it. But as soon as you think about putting it in in vivo systems, that's a no-go. So that makes sense to me. And next up, in vitro generation of gametes. This is something that varies based on the category. Again, if you're talking about introducing in vitro derived gametes into in vivo models, into 
early embryo models, that's a no-go. So that's a category three. Organoids in general are category one, including brain organoids, which I thought was interesting actually. And perhaps this is something we can talk about with uh, Dr. Madeline Lancaster. We've had a lot of concern and a lot of discussion about whether these brain organoids are actually maturing and developing quote unquote brains in a dish. But I think the committee has concluded that it doesn't matter what sort of organoid work you're doing, including brain organoid work. It's all category one. So it all, it's all good to go. In vitro chimera work is in general category one. But again, if you transfer things in vivo, it's category two slash three. Embryo genome editing with CRISPR, tail, and all of these kind of next-gen technologies. If it's for laboratory purposes, it's category two. But again, sounding like a broken record here. If you're dealing with clinical research and anything approaching in vivo, it's category three and impermissible. Um, so, you know, it's a, I thought the important thing here was the embryo model. So like updating these guidelines based on all of these exciting new technologies that have come out in the field in, in stem cell research. And honestly, listening to some of these talks and some of these sessions, there was a reflection that perhaps the 14-day rule has been held to an unnecessarily high standard, right? Maybe it's just something that's been around for so long that we've just established it and cemented it into our field and into stem cell biology. But if you reflect on the biology itself and the initiation of the primitive streak and so on, it's really much more ambiguous than that. There's no, what I'm trying to say is there's no specific reason as to why the 14 day rule should be viewed as, you know, concrete. And I think that's what these updated guidelines are showing that there is a lot more ambiguity in the, the science, especially with all these new technologies coming out. So I think these guidelines were, were due for an update. Yeah, it's been, it's been some time. And I think, uh, with the progress of the science, you know, we're going to need to update these things more regularly just to keep up. But I liked um, a few things, a few elements that became clear is that, you know, one, there's distinctions within each of these categories, like category three, A and B. You know, I like that because it's, it's provides some rationale. There's three A, you can't do it because it's not safe. And then there's three B, which you can't do it because like, there's really no rationale or it's just like wrong, you know, yuck test wrong. So I, I like that there, there is a, a important um, thinking and that's critical, I think, when we explain that to lay people, right? Because they want to know why. They want to know why, what, what, what's 14 days? What's the meaning of that day? What's the relevance? Um, and lastly, I also liked that there was this um, element that it's not like so cut and dried, you know? These aren't laws, these are guidelines. Um, and whether or not you can do a thing really comes down to the local authorities, right? You know, there, there's, there's sovereignty or scientific sovereignty, you could say, uh, for, for every, I wouldn't say institute, but um, in some ways, yes, given the IRBs and the local committees. So I think it's trusting scientists to be scientists. It's also um, informing uh, the lay people in the community and also deferring, I think, to the cultural distinctions amongst different communities, scientific communities, as well as just you know societal um, beliefs and um, ethos. So I, I really think it was a great uh, um, it was a great uh, thing to set off the meeting, just you know, as as to set up those mileposts for 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 what is I think what the consensus is 
Um, and I think it was uh, emblematic of maybe, I don't want to call it a society in transition, but uh, you know, talking now about the, the, the presidential plenary um, with the introduction from current president, outgoing president, Christine Mummery, I think there was a real emphasis uh, on how this meeting represented a lot of change. You know, obviously the COVID, it's clear and what that did to with the virtual format. Um, and I'm sure we'll be circling back to the virtual format many times. I mean, the, the gamifying thing, there's a lot of things I love, to be honest. The gamifying thing, I'm not, I'm, right, I'm currently in zeroth place. I, I, I know <laughs> you and I talked, you're in zeroth place too. But um, that hasn't clicked for me yet. But apart from that, I think they really um, have, have done a lot to optimize the format, although the connection is a little bit spotty. Again, we'll circle back to that. But then also uh, Sally Temple, who's the program chair, um, she talked about how they redesigned the format a little bit um, to kind of spread out the talk so there wouldn't be so much running around. Even in the virtual format, it was a bit stressful to hit all those concurrence. So it's less concurrence. You can make it to more sessions. The idea being also that you'll kind of wander into subjects that that maybe aren't your primary emphasis. There were five major themes, um, tissue stem cells and regeneration, new technologies, modeling development and disease, cellular identity, and clinical applications. Uh, and I think also given the, the past year of societal upheaval and, and uh, I guess revision, um, there was, I think, and there's gonna be a heavy attention to societal questions, you know, ethics, morality, given the, the guidelines, you know, that we, we just talked about, but also inclusion and equity in science. I think we're going to, we're going to come to that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, just by way of introducing the actual talks in the, in the plenary, I was very delighted to see that um, Dr. Mumry invited all the, the plenary speakers to share the aha moment uh, in their careers or in their scientific story, which I will say with all modesty, um, I think, you know, we did a little bit to establish the aha moments as a, a nice bit of narrative amongst the, the science scientists who join us on the show. So I was pleased to see that they borrowed a little bit from the stem cell podcast there. Um, and it was just a, an exciting round of talks. Uh, What's in a germ layer was the, the query uh, or, or the prompt there um, for the presenters. I don't know, Arun, what would you think generally of this, this session? Yeah, I thought it was a great session, good way to kick things off. I mean, uh, Dr. Mummery, after her introduction, after her welcome, wanted to, to note that Nancy Witte is actually going to be retiring as a CEO of the ICR after 15 years and who has been absolutely instrumental in getting this society to be where it is today as the premier society devoted to stem cell research around the world. So there were kind words from all past presidents and a whole who's who list of stem cell biologists, including Doug Melton, George Daly, Christine Mummery, Deepak Srivastava, Weissman, Hans Klevers, who was walking through a forest during his particular, uh, his particular thing. So that was interesting. Um, a bunch of esteemed dignitaries in the stem cell fields. So I thought it was a, a really nice thank you moment and a really nice um, uh, send off for, for Nancy Woody. So yeah, for sure, this idea of the Eureka moment, this is perhaps partly inspired by the Stem Cell Podcast, I don't know, but I think it's it's an important note for the trainees to pick up on. You know, we were all trainees at some point and there's some inspiration for all of us as to how we got involved in this field in the first place. And I thought it was cool actually that Christine Mummery 
mention that her eureka moment, her aha moment is the same as mine, actually seeing beating cardiomyocytes in a dish. So I got one thing in common with Christine Mummery. That's cool to see. Uh, in general, I thought it was a yeah, great session. Robin Lovell Badge received the ISCR Public Service Award in part because of his involvement on updating the ISCR international guidelines on stem cell research. He also actually worked on the uh, WHO Committee for, for Human Genome Editing. And then diving into the, the talks themselves, Chuck Murray presented some unpublished data uh, building on his decades-long mission to restore heart function by introducing stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes into uh, in vivo and ultimately into to human hearts, which is uh, something that's in clinical trials. But he's had a lot of focus on introducing these cells into non-human primate hearts, and unfortunately, as you know, we'll discuss the. Issue has been arrhythmias, generating heart rhythm problems and issues after introducing these cells into non-human primate hearts. But he introduced some unpublished data from Project Medusa, pretty nifty acronym there, where they were able to basically knock out a bunch of different ion channel genes critical to cardiac electrophysiology in a custom stem cell-derived cardiomyocyte line. And by introducing this line, into non-human non primate hearts, uh, they were able to eliminate some of those arrhythmia issues. And I think the ultimate concern next, or the ultimate, uh, the next step is see if these cells are actually functionally equivalent to wild type. So I think uh, Chuck Murray has a lot of work to be done in that particular area. Next up, Mary Hutch, who focused on adult tissue-derived organoids for non-intestinal tissues, Lorenz Studer, which I thought it was a really cool talk because he wasn't talking as much about his dopaminergic neuron work, which everybody knows about from his work with Blue Rock and so on. He was actually talking about the enteric nervous system and ways to actually derive enteric neurons from the sacral and vagal neural crest and a lot presenting a lot of really cool unpublished data there. And then finally, wrapping up with Dr. Elaine Fuchs, who unfortunately had some technical issues, as we all have in the last year. It's not just her. We've all had Zoom-itis and Zoom fatigue and Zoom glitches that have happened. Um, so, But she was able to, to recover and present a great talk on understanding the memory of epidermal stem cells and all things related to the skin. Yeah, I mean... Here we are a year later, and we can't get through the first day without a total debacle. But um, she did she did uh, recover like a champion. And for me, the highlight was, uh, I mean, Lorenz, as you said, his his talk had like three, four different stories or little kernels that were all beautiful, unpublished. Um, but my favorite part, and you got to rebroadcast if you haven't or get it on demand, because you will hear uh, Lorenz in that beautiful voice of his say, and the mice again poop, which is an exciting development. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in for that, folks, if nothing else. It's fantastic. Uh, I just want to cut to the next day. Um, you know, we can circle back on some of the trainee portions, perhaps, but um, jumping into day two. Uh, in the early session, there was a focus on the, this is the first concurrence, and I must admit that I was really focused more on the new tech, which is a lot of imaging there, but I did show up for Cedric Blampon's story because he's, you know, he came, went to Rockefeller, was there when I was there. I always follow him. He's, he's a god in skin, Elaine will tell you. Um, and he had a really nice story 
you know, surveying all his work over the last years, my only complaint there being that it wasn't much new data there. I, I know my favorite thing about this ISSCR is the emphasis on new data, but I get it. I mean, there's a lot of hawks out there trying to photograph and scoop you out. So I get it said, doing what you got to do. Also, though, some nice stories from, from a young trainee, in particular out of Tim Schroeder's lab, um, Naraz Ahmed, I think I got the name wrong, my bad man, but a uh, great, great uh, visual story. I love these uh, imaging stories, looking at GATA1, GATA2, down regulation of GATA1, bottom line there, that it was cell cycle shortening that led to the attrition of uh, GATA2, not the direct influence of GATA1. I love a, a descriptive story that gives you an insight, so that was cool for me. Um, then also I caught this talk by Krishnan, Padmavan, again, I busted that name up. Arun, you should be reading these names for me, my friend. Uh, he's is a, in vivo imaging. They were doing like uh, 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 neural cells in the brain with two photon marrying human cells with a, a mouse model these chimeras. Uh, amazing idea. I think that uh, we got a long way to go there, though, in, in getting um, these chimeras and imaging, live imaging. I mean, it's a high bar there, but... Uh, respectable effort. And finally, for me, I showed up to the whole session, the concurrence for Scott Frazier, because he he's doing some really um, exciting, tremendous stuff with imaging. And I love I love a good uh, micrograph. Um, it is like multi-spectral, multi-multi-multi-multi-multi was a talk title. It was an extravaganza of imaging. And the bottom line there was how I think you're, you're combining the, the optics and the physics with this kind of computer learning it had this thing called a hyperspectral phaser approach where you could image just based on almost autofluorescence. He was talking about imaging metabolism and human tissue primary, you know, no genetic engineering, human tissue imaging uh, to look at processes just using autofluorescence stacking like seven different fluorophores and labels. So that was really uh, visually tremendous. So for me, the, the concurrence were rich. I just made it to those, or those were the four sessions that I'd, I'd like to highlight. Um, and then I got to the, to the second plenary with, um, uh, uh, shucks, what's her name? Sorry. Cuba de Souza Lopez? <laughs> yes, the, de yeah. Souza Lopez, my, my, uh, my dear friend, who I forgot her name. That's how close we are. Um, <laughs> but I really long admire her because she's in the repro space. And I love how she, she'll give a talk and be like, I'm interested in all of it. Talking about the just germ cycle, like all of it. Um, she means it. Uh, and she is going after primordial germ cells and epigenetics, the whole kit and caboodle. I'm more interested in like follicle development. So I wish I had seen more of that from her, but I, I, she was courageous in sharing a lot of unpublished data. And then that led us to uh, Hans, right? Was he in a forest this time, Arun? Or did he, did he, I mean, where, where was he? He stepped out of the forest and into his office, but maybe it was back in the forest after his talk. But yeah, Hans Klebers being Hans Klebers talked about two cool stories that um, I think part of it's unpublished, part of it is published. First one is bacteria-induced mutagenesis and how certain bacteria like E. coli can actually induce mutagenesis and ultimately carcinogenesis and modeling this using their you know, universally acclaimed gut organoid model. And the second part of the talk was actually their SARS-CoV-2 work looking at gut infection using their 
gut organoid model, and more recently, a genetic screen for critical genes that are actually impacting SARS-CoV-2. And uh, the, other, the other two talks in that particular plenary were from Yacha Shu, whose work we've actually covered quite a bit recently in the podcast, looking at a impact of stress on hair follicles. You know, we're all graying a little bit more over the last year. I know, I know I am. There's been a lot, a lot that's happened, but the impact of stress on hair follicles and hair graying. And uh, the last talk in that session was Sean Morrison focusing on all things bone marrow related, the bone marrow niche. I want to bring it back to the first day, though, because I do want to, just like you, just highlight some of the trainees who are doing some of the the great work, the great meat and potatoes of the ICCR, you know, like that's, in my opinion, in my opinion, that's where the heart of this conference is, is the, the trainees, because the trainees by default are probably going to show a lot of their unpublished work. And it's really important for them to get their shine on major conferences like these, especially since you can't really do it in person, right? Everything's got to be virtual. So you got to let the trainees shine. So that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to highlight some trainees. So speaking of SARS-CoV-2, there was a, a session in the tools for basic and applied stem cell bio um, subsection, you know, where there are three back-to-back -back talks from trainees, I believe. Agnesia Ryback-Wolf, who is modeling viral infection, SARS-CoV-2 infection with brain organoids. Tim Blenenskoff using SARS-CoV-2 infection and in the eye and looking at some of the, the retinal infection there. And also Jesse Huang from the Cotton Lab that we've actually covered quite a bit on the show using their iPSC-derived alveolar cells as a model for SARS-CoV-2 infection. And uh, I think as somebody who's done some SARS-CoV-2 work over the past year, I, I think it's important to show that there has been an incredible utility for this different stem cell models and helping to study SARS-CoV-2 infection. Not only Hans Kleber's with the gut organoid models, but the eye, the brain, Shubing Chen over from where you are, right? You two had a bunch of different organoid models for studying SARS-CoV-2 infection. Jared Cherko, who's a mentor of mine from Joe Wu's lab, is who's now in Arizona, looking at SARS-CoV-2 infection of cardiomyocytes. So that definitely is a focus of this particular ISCR is recapping the amazing work that's happened over the last year focusing on coronavirus. But in addition to that, in addition to the COVID work, uh, there were some other cool talks in that tools for basic and applied stem cell bio session. Ilya Singek, whose paper we actually covered recently, uh, developed a, a next-gen uh, rock inhibitor yeah, I'm sure you remember that, that rock inhibitor light cocktail that's able to improve the survival of stem cell derived products for an extended period of time. You talked about that for a bit. Um, Eric Willems, technologies facilitating genome editing. Robert Swigert, uh, as a heart guy, I liked him when he talked about his heart forming organoids for modeling congenital heart disease. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just a variety of different amazing talks from the trainees out there. And it's not gonna, it's not gonna end today. It's, we've got what, another five days of this stuff. So I uh, just gotta emphasize that. Pay attention to the trainees and go to their poster sessions too. You know, they're not able to be in person, but this is how trainees get jobs and make connections. A lot of times through these talks and through these poster sessions. So let the trainees get their shine day long. Man, I'm not trying to hold them back. These trainees, they are, they are the meat and potatoes. You said it, they, they make it go. Um, and at this point, these PIs don't even know the tech anymore, let's be honest. So if it weren't for the trainees, they'd all be on an island. 
Um, this has been nice. The very first roundup session from our video episodes, we're about to get into a nice chat with Dr. Chuck, Chuck Murray, uh, one of the you know original gangsters, progenitors of uh, cardiomyocyte and IPS research, ES, everything. So that's going to be a fun talk. Um, let's get right to it. All right, people, we are here with Dr. Chuck Murray. But before we get to the chat, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Technologies. Whether you're attending ISSCR virtually or just want to see what's new, come visit Stem Cell's virtual conference exhibition to keep current with the latest advances and in innovations in pluripotent stem cell maintenance, differentiation, and cell therapy. Visit www.stemcell.com slash ISSCR to view our upcoming talks and specially curated resources for stem cell biologists. Now, onto our conversation with Dr. Chuck Murray, who is professor at the Institute of Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine at the University of Washington, um, also has a senior VP position at SANA. Uh, we're going to get to that. Uh, his research focuses on stem cell biology. He really needs no introduction. He's one of the first to uh, get human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes into the heart in vivo. Uh, the lab there has an emphasis on understanding differentiation of the human cardiovascular system and using these cells to study diseases and to regenerate damaged tissues. Uh, thanks for joining us, Chuck. What are you thinking of the conference so far? Uh, the, the first couple of days have been excellent. A lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. So why don't we dive a little bit into the work that you actually presented, you know, during your session on the first day. You, you've, of yeah, course, sure. we've been, you've been in the IPS cardiomyocyte, stem cell cardiomyocyte field for a long time now. And Dale and Dale and I are both cardiovascular biologists. I actually did my grad school in Joe Wu's lab. So I know all about the stem cell cardiomyocyte field. And of course, there's the big goal is we want to get these things potentially into patients to help restore cardiac function after myocardial infarction. And your lab has done a ton of work on this, you know, introducing these stem cell cardiomyocytes into non-human primate models. And I think what you showed was really exciting because it was an example of how you can avoid that problem of arrhythmias, right? So arrhythmias are the big issue with, with you know, introducing these cells into non-human primate models. And you were able to generate these Medusa cells, this cool acronym, I must say, these Medusa cells where you modified electrophysiological DNA to understand and suppress arrhythmias, right? And these Medusa cells, after you introduced them into the non-human primates, were able to uh, basically not induce arrhythmias. Now, the question I have is uh, actually something that came up in the Q&A session when it comes to actually the, the function, the overall function of these cells. Are they still functional to the same extent that a wild type human cardiomyocyte would be after introducing it into these non-human primate models? So, uh, talk us a little bit about a little bit about that. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so what we did was basically generate a line of stem cells that would uh, beget cardiomyocytes that we think have lost their pacemaking ability. So they don't spontaneously generate action potentials or beat in culture. But the key thing is that they will follow externally um, administered electrical stimuli. 
And so when we put a patch clamp electrode on them, we can get them to go up to three hertz, for example, or when we do it field stimulation, we can get them to, to beat very nicely. And you can, we can watch them beat. So they, they seem to have normal appearing contractile uh, mechanisms. This is just to the eye. We have, we've not really gone in a sophisticated way into force generation on a per cell basis, you know, that sort of stuff yet. Those are experiments still to be done. Uh, but they, as, as you said, when we transplant them in, they do not cause engraftment arrhythmia. So that, that, was, the, uh, that was really the, the gist of the talk from yesterday. And the, the key question is, will they still have beneficial effects on cardiac function after myocardial infarction? And that's the, the wonderful thing about the human mind compared to the human hands, that the mind can instantly absorb the information and project another 18 months worth of work before the humans can actually get around to doing it. So we'd love to know the answer to that. I can tell you what I think. I think sure. these cells are going to work just fine. Uh, I think we have screwed up their automaticity. I don't think we've done anything that's downstream of the action potential. Uh, there, there's one gene we're a little concerned about, the sodium-calcium exchanger, because it's the main way that cells offload their calcium that comes in during the action potential. So we'll have to see. Uh, so job security. Uh, we've, got, we've got some work to do in front of us, but we're, we're optimistic that these cells uh, are going to represent a, a breakthrough on route to clinical translation. Yeah, you said it. It's going to take some time to get that answer, right? And it's it's taken some time. You know, it's been over 20 years. <laughs> Don't remind me. Yeah. <laughs> it's been, yes, it's been some time. I won't say that it's been over two decades. It's been over 20 years. Does that sound any better? Probably not. But it's been a while, right? We've had the, mm -hmm. the human embryonic stem cells and their correlates, the induced pluripotent stem cells in hand for a while. You've been making cardiomyocytes. You've been putting them into hearts for a long time. Um, and, and listening to your talk, I thought it was a great to have it in the intro session because it really uh, had me reflecting on the arc of uh, progress over those two decades. And, you know, there's been a lot of stumbling blocks, clearly. And I think it's taken maybe longer than some people would have expected or hoped. Um, and you alluded to it really early in your talk in terms of the, the, the history of kind of cardiovascular stem cell therapy with the you know, the anniversary studies with the paracrine effect and the, the, the bone marrow derived, you know, clearly that was a, a blind alley, right? Um, and that was a lot of resources that were dedicated perhaps in the wrong direction, but we learned a lot uh, from the negative, maybe more than, more than we, we could have learned a lot more, a lot quicker. But um, it had me thinking about in those 20 years, uh, when you reflect, when we finally have engineered tissue and it's, it's saved a life, uh, and extended a life, and it's derived from pluripotent stem cells, and you reflect back on, on the stumbling blocks over the arc of, of this field that you invented or played a large part in inventing. Um, what do you think are the major stumbling blocks that have kind of impeded uh, the, the progress and that, uh, the reasons why we haven't really uh, gotten closer to the finish line uh, to date? Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, the, the first thing was we didn't know how to differentiate the cells, right? We could, we, everybody would show a little corner of a embryoid body that had beating cardiomyocytes in it. But when we got around to quantifying it, we were getting under 1% cardiomyocytes. So we really had to stop making teratomas in the plate and, and really learn the, how to apply the rules of developmental biology to get reasonable cardiomyocyte cultures that could be turned into cellular therapies. So that was the first thing. 
And then when we got around to transplanting these cells, most of them died. And so we got essentially no engraftment to, to start on. And it turns out the infarcted heart is a stressful place to put new cardiomyocytes in. And so we had to learn the rules of uh, uh, what, what was causing cell death. And then we created what we call a pro-survival cocktail to keep the cells alive after transplantation. So that, so that, that seemed to be good. And we, we then started making fairly rapid progress going up the food chain from mice to rats to guinea pigs. Uh, and in guinea pigs, we were interested in the electrical properties. And we found that it actually suppressed arrhythmias in the guinea pig, didn't create arrhythmias. And so then we made the leap uh, nine years ago now into non-human primates. And this was, it was wonderful because we showed it's possible to do large scale remuscularization of a heart in an animal that should be predicted in a human being. But we came in, we came into this problem of engraftment arrhythmias. And so it's been like peeling an onion. You know, there's, there, there, there's one thing and you can only solve, you, you, as soon as you solve the first layer, you come to the next layer of problem into the next layer. And uh, the, the thing that we know that still is in front of us is the immune system because we're, we're looking to do allogeneic off the shelf therapies. And um, we, we, need to be, we need to be finding ways to get around the immune, the immune system with the vision of being basically like the universal donor cell used by engineering the cells to be hypoimmune. And that was one of the reasons I uh, brought my work into SANA biotechnology was because Sonia Schrepfer from UCSF has also moved into SANA and Sonia's got an outstanding program in stem cell immunobiology. And I wanted to partner with her because I thought that would be the greatest chance of success. So what about the maturation side of things? Like I'm an in vitro cardiomyocyte biologist. I don't do any, very little in vivo work, but this has been a, an issue plaguing our field for, for so long, right? The idea of making these cells more and more adult-like, more mature, electrophysiologically, functionally, and so on. And of course, over the years, there have been a number of approaches to actually further promote the maturity of these cells through functional pacing and all, all this kind of stuff, metabolic maturation and all that. But for the in vivo perspective, is this something that is critical? I mean, for the work that I do, perhaps it is really important to replicate an adult myocyte outside of the body. But for in vivo transplantation, is it okay to put an immature cell into the body and assume that it's just going to become mature due to the niche that it's placed in? Well, that was the assumption that we went with for, for many years. And let's set arrhythmias aside for just a moment. If you just look at the, from, from the cell's perspective, it works pretty well. These cells start out as little round balls and they gradually spread out, elongate and turn into adult-like rod-shaped cardiomyocytes. They polarize their junctions to the intercalated discs and that sort of thing. And after, so after several months in a proper in vivo environment, they really look quite good. And so the, the most adult-like we've been able to get a stem cell-derived cardiomyocyte has been through in vivo transplantation. Tissue engineering approaches with the kind of electrical simulations that you mentioned are probably next best kinds of things, certainly the best in vitro. So, so is it reasonable? Yes, but, and, and, and the but is that we have this issue of the, the, this awkward st adolescence stage where the cells are immature compared to the, uh, the surrounding cardiomyocytes and they've got these extra currents that they have no business having in that environment and they're missing at least one current that we think they should have. 
And so that was the basis for our gene editing approach was to try to tinker with the genome so that we could induce a more adult-like electrical phenotype in our cells prior to transplantation. If we'd, we'd love to know how to do that more organically, more naturally, uh, by taking advantage of natural developmental mechanisms that drive that process, that, that, that remodel the on-channel gene expression repertoire. Uh, we're working, we like many others are working on meta metabolism, we're working on transcriptional regulation, we're working on biophysical kinds of things. And um, it moves in that direction, you get the vector, but but we're not, we're not nearly down the road developmentally uh, as far as we need to be yet. Yes. Uh, and to get down that road, I mean, you just alluded to it, you, you've, you've kind of gone uh, in not exclusive of your academic uh, involvement, but you've joined uh, Santa Therapeutics with Sona Schreffer there. Um, and you said it's really to get to the finish line, right? It's, it's, a, it's to try and get the resources, both intellectual, I'm sure financial as well. But um, a scientist that I really respect told me um, and forecast uh, and makes some pretty bombastic statements from time to time. So, I mean, take it with a grain of salt, but he said that um, the future of mechanistic science is in industry. And that's not to say that you won't find uh, mechanistic science in academia as well. But I think the idea that he was trying to get at is that in order to translate uh, in particular um, cell-based therapies, uh, you're going to need to tap industry, but we always knew that to get any therapeutic from exper experimental to commercial stage. But not only that, but in industry, it's not just going to be about the endpoints anymore. It's going to be at the, the mechanism. Do you mm -hmm. find that there really is an emphasis on mechanistic science in industry uh, more so uh, than before? And that's what's really leading a lot of academic scientists to partner with industry, or is it the same influences you think uh, as? historically, you know, resources, financing? Uh, really, <clears throat> excuse me, really an interesting question. Uh, I think one of the pleasant surprises I found uh, joining SANA has been the extent to which they're supportive of mechanistic science. Uh, this is mechanism with a mission, I guess I'd call it, because we th there are things we simply uh, need to understand if we're ever going to rationally optimize them. And so the, this is a whole new kind of medicine. And this is sort of like applied developmental biology, right? And so, so we, I, I think it's very exciting because we have industry level resources and we're tacking, tackling fundamental problems of really developmental biology, maturation, injury and repair, things like that. Uh, but these are, these are it, it, it needs to be very focused, of course, with an eyes on the prize. Like this is what we need to know in order to make something work in the clinic. Um, so if, if you're of the mindset where that kind of, you know, mechanism with some, with like bumper guards on the bowling alley, that sort of thing, so that it tries to keep your vector pointing towards the clinic, it can really be quite an interesting place to work. Hmm. All right, Chuck, I wish we had more time to share with you, but we got to let you get back to the conference. Just before we let you go, I just want to ask anything in particular you're looking forward to, any talks, any presentations or sessions that you're really psyched about this year? Oh, I mean, the, the one that we had this morning was, was really fun on the stem cell niche. I mean, uh, from, from Yashe Su from uh, Harvard, the, I now know why my hair goes gray and falls off when I'm stressed. 
And so that was that was uh, that that was an interesting one. The 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 fun thing about this is that you know I, I'm you just stuff pops up in all these niches. Let's say where I where I wouldn't you know where I don't spend most of my time, and so you you just get these really fun interesting things that uh, you know sort of make you you know it's it's good for party conversation and stuff like that. Uh, so it's been a fun conference. Yes, so far we're only through the first day, now midway through the second, uh, but that brings us to the end of our first ISSCR 2021 video episode. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Chuck. Uh, don't forget to follow us, uh, listeners, watchers in this case, on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast to find out what we're doing at the meeting. And check back here tomorrow for our next episode with Dr. Madeline Lancaster. That's going to be really exciting to talk to her. Uh, we'll see you then. You can see us then and hear us too. Thanks for joining us.